Yeah, I think creativity is developed under oppression. So, like, there's no institution that's going to give you creativity. They're buying it from you. This is for everyone who is far away from home, but close to it at the same time. Diaspora Babes is the art you make, the art you love, and the arc of justice. We are brown, queer, struggling, thriving, too much, too loved, and too loving. My name is Amal, I'm a Yemeni-Lebanese artist currently living in Paris, and this is Diaspora Babes, love letters to myself and you. Hi babes, I'm so excited to share my first interview on the podcast. I share a conversation with Alice Barkley Cat, an astrologer based out of Brooklyn. It's perfect that my first interview is with a queer POC astrologer, and this conversation is packed with delicious tidbits and idea trains that I hope you'll enjoy riding on with. We explore and expand on favorite diaspora babe themes, and as a map, here are some guiding questions for you to keep in mind. What is our dreaming space in 2019? How do you survive late capitalism as a creative queer person of color? What's more powerful, the desire for relationships, community, and connection, or the drive of capitalism and profit? How do both function in creating a personal brand? Love, Amal. What do you see as your creative practice? How would you define that? Oh man, that's really hard to say. I guess I really like astrology because it does like let me work in a lot of different formats and it gives me a platform and yeah it's like through making memes it's through like the consultations are creative too it's through writing a lot of us writing and then like I want to try getting into other things too like I also draw but it would be good to like create experiences in different ways too so you see like your creative practice as like not just the astrology but I guess kind of everything that you use to communicated is that what you mean yeah I think so because like I guess my idea of creativity is like it's just like this mindset because I used to do a lot of art and um I guess like doing astrology was me deciding well art only exists when it's a social relation so astrology really forces me to like only have it be about a relationship whether that's between you and like another person that's the client or it's like you and a classroom or um you to like just astro fans um but like there's a community aspect i think that's what makes it creative i think that's really interesting you said art only exists as like a relation between among people is that what you said yeah like it doesn't exist unless it's social for me i don't know Mm, that sounds super different from how I've heard like a lot of people think about their art because for some it's such a it's such a personal practice you know what I mean like for some people their art is just whatever they're doing by themselves um, but for you you feel like it's a social exchange or relationship then right yeah I do I do because I think that meaning is social can you say more about that I guess like there's parts of it that are really introspective for sure we're introverted like I also write fan fiction and for me like that's where I like let myself be most creative Mm -hmm. and then 
when I'm doing that, it's just like me and whatever I'm writing. But、mm. what I'm realizing is like how I think of characters, how I think of like what verses I put these characters into, that's all coming from the fandom. So there's like these unspoken fandom cultures and agreements and assumptions about the characters that change throughout time.、Mm. And the characters aren't really like what they are in the canon. They are. Um, how people react to them as a group. And、um, I guess, like, when I do put my fanfiction on the internet for other people to read, then it becomes social. Like, we talk and then we, like, obsess over them. And that to me is the creativity part. I super feel the idea of art and the, basically like art existing in the relationships that you have with it. The art has meaning in how you relate to it, right? It's not just、yeah. like it stands in something by itself. And I think like a、mm-hmm. good piece of art will,、um, people bring different things to it and like new things come、mm-hmm. out of it, like in different times and in different contexts. Yeah. Would you say it's art then if you don't share it? Hmm. I'm not really sure. Yeah.、Um, I'm trying to imagine what that could look like. And I guess, like, there's rituals that I do that, like, I don't share, but I wouldn't call that creative,、mm. really. Yeah. I wouldn't call that art, really. I think art exists when it's, like, participated with and it's really owned by the person who's viewing it.、Mm. Um, yeah. I super feel that actually、um, when you're writing fan fiction and how you're engaging with like、uh, the, fan, the fan universe and the ideas of the characters that's held, that are held by other people. So I think it's interesting, like the idea of relationships coming into your art. I think it's true independent of whether you share it or not, right? Because the creation、mm-hmm. of it has come from the relationships that you, know, you have either with other people or that the art's created with other people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's pretty liberating for me to like, feel like, oh, like, by viewing something, like, that's a creative act, too. Because a lot of, like, I guess, like, movies and TV shows, they're made by all these like, white dudes. But then it's like, oh, well, we can have ownership over that、um, through our creative viewing experience, too. And、mm. that's where culture is created. Viewing something is a creative experience. I love that. I feel like, isn't it Bell Hooks who has something about the oppositional lens or the oppositional gaze or something like that? I have、Ooh. to look that up. Have you, do, does that ring any bells or no? I haven't heard that term before, but I love it. I'm going to look that up and I'll probably, yeah, oppositional gaze, Bell Hooks. This is what Google's telling me. Um, oppositional gaze is a political rebellion and resistance against the repression of black people's right to gaze, and it is through these looking relations that independent black cinema develops. So it's like specifically in the context of like black feminism, and I have to like look into the specifics, but I remember underlining it in when I was reading some film theory texts, just in the idea that when you're viewing, usually like there's certain hierarchies of the There's certain hierarchies of like the person who looks and the one who's looked at, right?、Mm-hmm. And I think when you're looking at art,、mm, your view, your gaze is kind of like subjugated to the view of the creator. And again,、mm. it's usually like that assumed kind of white male、uh, gaze that's kind of built into the piece, and you kind of have to subsume your. 
like identity into that gaze to interact with the piece. But mm-hmm. for me, there's something like really interesting about um, your gaze kind of being opposed to what you're being presented, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like um, slash goggles. Um, slash I don't know goggles? Of- what? Yeah. It's like this fan fiction term where it's like if you look at anything, you just see like how gay it is. Ah, um, yes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and then what I like find really interesting about how the fan fiction um, gaze has changed is that I think when I first started writing fan fiction, it was like all these kind of like Victorian-like prose. Mm. Um, it would be like, it, like point of view is reinforced really heavily. Like you use the I pronoun sometimes. But then now when I look at like current fan fictions being produced, it's like more of a cinematic perspective where you're not like inhabiting one person's point of view necessarily the entire time. And the unknowability of another character isn't, like, what makes them desirable or anything. It's, like, you're objectifying both. And then you are also able to go into both. Um, Mm. Yeah. And I kind of like that more. I don't know why it happened. How much do you think that change has to do with the move towards, I guess, collective consciousness that happens through social media and, like, everyone kind of getting plugged into the internet? Yeah, well, I was reading some fan fiction history, which is just like rumors. And somebody was saying that like this happened because of Pop Slash, because Pop Slash, like Slash of like InSync um, and Backstreet Boys was written in this super cinematic way because like pop music is a visual format. And mm. then that influenced like other types of fan fiction. Hmm, okay. All yeah. right. Do you have like a website I should direct people to for your fan fiction or do you keep that like kind of No, separate? that's my that's my secret identity. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm well, just influenced by the world. You're influenced by the world of fan fiction, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> I think we've already maybe touched a little bit on some of these things, but what does decolonizing your practice mean to you? So, like that term is super tricky because I always feel like there's an impossibility. Mm. Um, yeah, just like like astrology itself is this kind of like it's this like gigantic institutional thing. And if you look at the history, it's made through appropriation, mm. and um, it's super hard to say like, well, where's the timeline in terms of decolonization? Like, what timeline are we going back to? Are we going back to like pre-modernity for whatever reason? Are we going back to like the time of empire building? And so I guess like when I say decolonize astrology, I've started using it less because of the confusion. It's like more of a question. It's like, well, what does this actually look like? And how do we, um, yeah, how do we change it? I think that really is kind of like the contradiction or maybe the dichotomy about colonization, right? Because you're saying this whole thing about uh, going back to and mm-hmm. decolonial or when we're talking about colonization, there really is this language of like before and after, like post-colonial mm-hmm. or decolonial, decolonialism and going back to, but mm-hmm. there is a sense of undoing, right? Yeah. And 
Yeah, right. Like, I, you know, there, I, I, you really can't go back to something mm-hmm. in the past. And so that idea of a question, having it be like more open ended, like, what does this look like? What is the sort of world that we're trying to create look like is, I think, a good way to approach it. Yeah, I think the question is like, what happens after oppression? What happens after trauma? Like, does it end? That is the question, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no one has an answer. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely one of those projects that, you know, the whole kind of like, it's not the destination, it's the journey, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, I feel like I do have to believe in a destination in terms of like a just mm-hmm. world, but I think that it's really kind of like the continual dedication to creating more just worlds that mm. is like the project we have to dedicate ourselves to, like, you know? Yeah, I like that. Well, not that anyone has, no one has to dedicate themselves to it, but <laughs> <laughs> if we're thinking about, you know, these sorts of projects, then yeah. Yeah. I feel yeah. about it. You know, you have such a very particular online presence. It's really this combination of like wry, awkward humor, irony, <laughs> nerd, nerd oh, culture. Really? <laughs> and yeah, a really quiet, genuine dedication to one's self growth. And I was really wondering, how do you navigate creating something that feels like real to you and also developing an online personal brand? That's a really good question because I went to like this always just sticks to my head. I think I've said this before, but I went to this conference about social change and somebody in there was like, build your village, not your brand. But then like every time you like look in a marketing book, it's like saying oh find your community so then I'm like well these things are like the same um in our social media universe so it's like it's really hard to like have authentic feelings towards that I guess I'm thinking about um how how social justice language is like being co-opted by a lot of corporations And um, there was something that my friend and mentor was saying to me the other day about, like, the capitalism of wokeness. Mm -hmm. And um, thinking about that, I'm, like, wondering, are these, like, is the strategy corrupt or is it because the people that are behind it? And I also think about how our political language, just because... I mean, I live in America where it's all about advertising anyway. Like you open a marketing book and they always talk about some kind of presidential campaign. And so it's really hard to argue for political agency, I think, without branding, at least from where I'm coming from. I haven't really existed politically in any other context outside of American one. So when I think about like, oh, I have an issue with like Con Edison, the electric company right now or something, Mm -hmm. I like end up expressing channeling all that frustration into something that like has an image, like maybe has some words. Yeah. And disgruntlement like easily becomes a brand here. And I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. Disgruntlement easily becomes a brand. It's so true. I think it is interesting, like the way, you know, for Instagram, especially like for marketing or for business stuff that you have to like image your life I guess and find like different images 
to um, that people can consume or to understand. You know, basically like translating a complex person into, yeah, like an image and a caption, right? Yeah, I was like venting about this with someone else too. And it was like, I remember during like Web 1.0, it was like we were all anonymous and we were all just like posting our weird like fantasies online. And now we use the internet for work. And like, I guess because like, I mean, I've been part of the gig economy for like four years and it's like, we all have to kind of be these self-exploiting machines um, and just think like, oh, like after my project with like this company ends, I might be able to get another one or maybe it's another thing. So we have to like brand ourselves to get work. And I do that, like, with my other jobs, too. Like, I'm a teacher. I, like, totally have a teacher brand. And, like, that's under a different name. Um, Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to, like, go around that. That might just be, like, part of being maybe a millennial. I don't like it that much. (laughs) Sometimes it's fun. What are the things that really challenge you about that or that you chafe against? The things that um, I don't like about it is that I think it does, like, detach me from the actual work involved. I feel like you wear a different mask to sell yourself to an institution. Um, and then you kind of have to become a different person when you actually do interact with the students. Yes, I feel that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was actually going to ask you about that article that you just wrote for GoMag on what each astrological sign <laughs> can tell us about surviving in a gig-based economy. <laughs> uh, see, that's the sort of thing that I meant about your online presence and how it feels really different from a lot of the sort of um, woo or astrology things that are out there. Your entry on Aries, the first one, of course, and I know you're in Aries with husband <laughs> there. I'm actually going to read it if Aries doesn't care what the job is or what the pay is like. All they know is that they're sitting around on a Saturday wanting to order food, but lamenting an empty wallet. So they might as well head to Midtown and hand out pamphlets for $50. And uh, <laughs> I'll go on. But you know what? That first thing I was like, I feel like that has been written by experience from experience. Yeah, that's totally me. <laughs> Uh, and <laughs> Aries has a huge number of side hustles. It's hard to tell what their actual job is. They may do yeah. making hair as well as fix cars, but only on Wednesday. Basically, if Aries has the capacity, they will do the job for you. The only thing they struggle with is how much money to ask per job. You see, they're used to judging every standard by manual labor rates, so they're the ones who end up accepting $10 an hour for making a website. Yeah. I actually, I do make websites and, uh, like, my rate's pretty low. (laughs) (laughs) I read that and as someone who, like, both writes and um, figures out how to address people based on my personal life, I was like, you know what? That sounds like someone just sat down and went from the experience. (laughs) (laughs) That was totally on me, just, like, yeah, ranting, but also thinking, like, oh, maybe this is, like, a flaw in myself I should try to fix. (laughs) I saw, like, my, um, a Capricorn friend of mine post on Facebook once that was, like, um, don't ask whether you can do the job, ask whether you're the right person. And Mm -hmm. I was, like, oh, that's what work is about. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I totally feel that. I mean, you know, as I said, rising your um, advice about Sagittarius should break their passion projects into a set of skills and present them in a way that makes sense outside of whatever industry they're already in. I was like, oh, because, yeah, I can I'm good at a lot of things like I can do a lot of things. And it's really kind of going from I can do that to what am I best at doing? What do I want to do? That yeah. like, feels really important to me. Going off of what we've said, what are your thoughts on balancing your creative practice and surviving under late capitalism? If you have anything else to kind of contribute to that endeavor. For me, I guess it's the urgency of needing to survive that has like um, made me react creatively. Like think of creative solutions to things like, for example, like I went to art school actually and mm. then I just, like, could not, like, rent a studio and, like, buy a bunch of oil paint canvases and be a painter. Like, it didn't make sense to me that, like, you would spend money without having a chance to make money. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up doing this, which is, like, pretty immaterial. Um, making the book is the first time I've, like, had any overhead. So I think, like creative mindsets are developed like when there isn't so much like like money or space or time like it seems like a lot of the tools that are associated with creativity creativity like cost so much money but then like creativity is really like oh like there's there's no place that will hire me so like let me try to create my own um job or something yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's something I've I've always admired about and thinking about a couple of my friends back home. Some of my friends in college who are like really stressing about getting a job. Um, not necessarily like I mean from a financial standpoint, yes, but more like how can I get someone to give me a life purpose by mm. giving me a job, right? And yeah. as someone who's like an artist and engaged in a variety of creative processes. I'm trying to work on, I, I guess, yeah, creating like my job and my kind of life purpose without someone, you know, like, like someone just being like, this is who you are, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think creativity is developed under oppression. So mm. like there's no institution that's going to give you creativity. They're buying it from you. I completely agree with that idea of creativity being developed under um, oppression or under like circumstances and that's why like POC and particularly like queer POC are the ones that like create culture and mm-hmm. <laughs> why like white people are the ones who are always just trying to like get a little bit of that you know flavor because, <laughs> <laughs> because they're something and they wouldn't know who they were without everyone else you know yeah that's my opinion <laughs> and, and for me it's definitely kind of like that balance between the creativity coming as a result of like having to hustle and having to like get by with less than others and also just you know doing the sort of makeup work that happens when you maybe didn't have the same sort of like um the same sort of opportunities or address that uh some a more privileged person might have for example yeah totally i've never felt as creative as like when I'm really angry, <laughs> but I'm an Aries. So. <laughs> <laughs> can you say more about, can you say more about that creativity and anger? 
I mean, I guess, like, feeling anger, even if it's, like, oh, like, I'm just, like, stuck on the MTA. I've been on this train for, like, two hours. I'm, like, God, like, um, and we, like, taxpayers give all this money towards the MTA. And then, like, I start going on this tangent in my mind. I'm, like, oh, just, like, all of this, like, symbolic rage comes out. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, like in tarot, of course, astrology as well, like the wands are the suit, it's a fire suit. So they're about like creativity, passion as well, passion and anger, you know, in some way, (laughs) but also creativity and your like creative passion manifestation as well, like will. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting kind of um, crossover there. Yeah. One of the things that you brought up when we talked about this was what is our dreaming space in 2019 that's what i want to know um honestly (laughs) because um just like what we were talking about before with um like intern and the internet used to be like such a dream space it was made for dreaming but now it's like made for working like that sucks i mean in some ways it's good um it definitely like changes the structure of work but then i'm like well we also need some dream spaces like for me it's fandom um but i also see like fandom changing a lot in what ways just the platforms are kind of dying out but it seems like after live journal collapsed there was like kind of this absence of at least in the fandom that i'm in maybe it's different in like different fandoms but um, there's an absence of a platform. Yeah, I think platforms are something that really come up for me in this. And I guess it's just a reflection of, you know, how are we able to dream and create like ourselves and the identities that we want under the oppressive structures that permeate our world. But for example, Instagram and Facebook, like I, I can't get away from the idea that everything I post on there and all the ways that I use it to create my self-image and connect to people it's owned by someone else and it's a tool to make them money you know yeah that's true yeah because i don't know how live journal made money i think with just ads um but they didn't like you had the option of keeping ads or paying live journal to not have them too yeah and instagram i don't even think it's a choice it's like they you know they they're, they're making money off of your information right yeah your, um, yeah, your actual person. I don't know. It's a weird feeling. It is. I've been moving more towards like using my journals as a way to world create, I guess, you know, and investing mm-hmm. in like connecting to my friends outside of social media as a way to kind of like use my relationships with my friends as a way to dream, I guess. What do you think about the balance between dedicated relationship with someone online versus like the anonymity (laughs) of the earlier days of the internet and how that either got in the way or helped to create relationships? I mean, I really enjoyed those friendships um, just with people who you don't know anything about them. Um, you just know their pseudonym, and then you talk to them on like AIM every day. Sparkly I really like girl, that. Three five seven XX, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it was so fun. Yeah, it was definitely this interesting thing where you could like log on and just kind of like be who you wanted or say whatever you wanted about yourself, and you know mm-hmm. that's all the other person would have to go on, you know? Yeah, and I felt like it was less addictive for some reason. Well, I don't know. I think that if you like the shadow side of that was like people just saying and doing really fucked up shit because they could oh, yeah. using it like to be abusive and stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's 
True. I'm interested in some of the thoughts you have around astrology and time, especially in regards to Western structures and modernity. So one of the things you say on your website about why you use astrology is that, I quote, it reimagines the self and collective in relation to time, and also that it redefines history as collective trauma. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Just like while um, researching, just like what is this astrology thing and how is it created? Um, I found that like the first thing that empires do when they get formed is like they usually create a calendar. And yeah, because a calendar really like standardizes the economy of just like, well, when do debts get fulfilled and when are there like punishments like yeah, um, I think time is one of the biggest um, just pieces of culture. And astrology has always played a role in that, just like the mythology of time. When that happens, it's less about like this government just like making up a story or something about keeping track of time. Then there already being a story that exists about like what is the relation that people have to the land how does it organize your social relationships and how time plays a role in that narrative and governments which is like usually just like men with power will take those stories and then they will repurpose them for their own narratives so the stories always already exist our mythology is like these stories aren't created by like conquerors. They're created by farmers. Mm. And um, it's just like when we hear them, um, the viewership has changed. The viewership has changed from people who are using these stories in other ways to they're being like, oh, this is a cultural center of power. So this is where time starts. And we're all adapting to like this time zone. Um, So yeah, some stories get repeated more than others. Like some stories um, are absorbed into other stories. And then I guess like the trauma part, um, the trauma part is like saying, well, these stories are about collective traumas. And, um, but most importantly, the way that they're retold is about trauma because trauma is something that you experience over and over whether it is happening to you regard like you know whether it's actually happening again or not Mm. um and that's like it's like yeah these stories are experienced like with almost amnesia and um thinking about it in a modern context because i think it's easy to be like oh mythology is something that happened like a thousand years ago but it doesn't happen anymore it still happens like Hollywood has this like amnesia with um, being obsessed with East Asian spirituality. It happened like during the beatniks. It happened with like the hippies, and it's happening now. But each time, it feels like it's happening like anew. And then I feel like that is a little bit what's happening with mythology. Mythology in what sense? Mythology in um, creating these icons which live in these mythology complexes. Like, actually, I have this quote in this book that I have in front of me that was about that. Let me find that quote. It's like, Barth's row, icons and myths often go hand in hand. The icon is often at the disposal of the myth. Although the icon itself can take on mythic proportions. In the case of the icon of the Oriental monk, both are the case. The Oriental monk participates in the myth of the spiritual East. The figure embodies that spirituality 
acts as its most cherished sign. Is it is mythic in the sense that it is decorated, adapted to a certain type of consumption, laden with literary self-indulgence, revolt images, in short, with a type of social usage which is added to pure matter. Like I guess this critique could be applied to a lot of different icons, not just the Oriental monk.、Mm. An icon is—it's always interesting because then it's like it's the image, but also the story you tell about it. You know, if you're thinking about it in terms of art, it's like the art, but then the relationship that you have with it—the icon or the image—and I'm sure they're using icon in the sense besides just image, but the image is not just the contours and the colors and the textures or the forms. It is the mythology and the story and the relationship that you have like、mm. with it. You know, to—I'm just thinking of it in a spatial sense. Yeah, it's about the circulation. That reminds me of some thoughts I had when we were talking about like creating a brand、um, versus being authentic. Go ahead. I used to feel this like just distrust with myself because there was something about marketing that made me feel excited. But then, like the more I did it, the more I realized like, well, what I'm looking for is connection and community. That's my north node, and、um, yeah, marketing is not about creating a brand where. Image really, it's about trying to create connections,、mm. and、um, it's a really powerful tool. And I feel like because it has to do with like feelings and social relationships,、um, it's being it's used by capitalism. But it like I don't know if it transcends capitalism, but maybe it does. Circulation in the context of like astrology and systems of time as a way of kind of organizing power. I think it's really cool that astrology like helps reflect the cycles or the the cyclical nature of time, which is something that I think modernity、mm-hmm. like really wants us to get away from, right? Like modernity is like、mm-hmm. linear time. We're going from point A to B. We're moving forever into the future, whereas astrology、yeah. at least offers like a sense of. Well, actually, these are all cycles, and we're all kind of like spinning <laughs> and covering the same ground over and over、yeah. and over again. Yeah, I like that because we don't know how life, like, we don't know why we're alive. No, we don't know what happens after we die. Maybe we come back. Maybe, yeah. And you know, the thing about trauma too, like. Nothing, nothing bends time like trauma does. Like nothing like, makes you rem- remember that. Oh, like shit. Like this actually isn't in、yeah. the past. This is happening in my body right now.、Um, than yeah. Trauma, right. Yeah, and trauma. It's like it becomes cultural. It's how meanings created. So we're experiencing trauma, even if it didn't happen to our body in the present. It's like we're reacting to historical trauma. We're reacting to trauma that's anticipated. Reacting to anticipated trauma. What do you mean by that? I guess knowing, like, well, if something could happen, or knowing, like, this is something that will happen, like、mm-hmm. that can be pretty traumatic too. I guess I'm thinking about like just environmental collapse. I feel like a lot of pop culture is like obsessed with this dystopian theme. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that's just like my Netflix recommendations. <laughs> But, <laughs> no, it's not the deal. Yeah, maybe that's us reacting to this anticipated trauma and the current trauma, right? Like as we're、yeah. all about it, going about our daily lives, and we're just obsessed on it through pop culture. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, you posted some poetry on your Instagram a little bit ago. Do you mind reading it for me? Every creation myth is a remix of the long lost memories of a bird, snake, and fern ancestors. They will continue to tell us that the world is made of hours and borders, and the reality is the world will continue to make more prophets, alchemists, and diviners. I thought that was super powerful in relation to our conversation, like, on time. The thing about hours and borders in particular, that made me think about, again, like, all the ways we have to tell time as a, a way to control our bodies, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, particularly capitalism telling you you're supposed to get up at this time no matter what's going on and go to work at this time no matter what's going on and how unsustainable that is or out of kind of alignment with who we are as prophets, alchemists, and diviners, you know? I wrote this right after reading the sci-fi trilogy called Three-Body Problem. There's this part in it that they have this computer that generates model of the Earth if they change a couple factors. So they generate one for if Earth never developed life. Mm -hmm. And it was just like totally barren no atmosphere. I think this is scientifically accurate because the writer was really into science, actually. Well, life generates its own conditions. So if we don't have life, then we don't have the conditions for life either. Mm. Yeah, that boggled my mind. Time is super, super weird. In China, too, there's only one time zone for the entire country, which makes no sense because it's so wide. Um, Like, if it was long and skinny, maybe, but... uh. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I think we've covered some really interesting ground. Yeah, thank you for talking with me, too. I like that we started, when we started talking, we are talking about time zones, because we're Uh in different time zones, and then we ended up talking about time zones, too, circular time. (laughs) look at that (laughs) can I end with one more question how do you remember that your art is important well for me it's important just as a way of survival like just thinking well what else would I be doing um I guess like watching movies or um like just kind of sleeping for me it's like having a routine to ward off depression too Mm-hmm. Um, and that's super important to me. It's just like knowing, oh, if you don't like if you don't prioritize like learning something every day and also creating something like every few days, like you will be depressed and you have experience of this. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for giving uh, me such a great idea to end on about creativity being essential to our happiness. And thank you so much. I I think that concludes our interview. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for interviewing me and having me on your podcast. Alice Barkley Cat is based out of Brooklyn. She does in-person and on-the-phone consultations and is currently selling the book Astrology and Storytelling, where you learn astrology by writing a work of fiction based on your birth chart. I definitely recommend you follow her on Instagram at Alice Sparkly Cat, and that's cat with a K. Follow if you want some sharp, incisive, funny astrology content that really stands out from a lot of the stuff that's being posted on Instagram. Follow the podcast on Instagram also at Diaspora Babes. 
please share with your friends and let me know your thoughts. If you have any thoughts from the last few episodes that you want to share, email me at diasporababes at gmail.com, slide into the DMs, or send me a voice message on WhatsApp or Anchor, and I can include it in the next episode. As always, the music you're listening to is by Leil Omaran. Until next week, keep safe, keep faith. I really enjoyed hearing about your fan fiction world. I think it's great. I imagine you like in this, um, in almost like a cosplayer's outfit, you have like your, what's the the word, your alter ego. I do, yeah. I post a fan fiction chapter every week and I've been doing that for 13 years. Dedication. Yeah, I'm dedicated. (laughs) I admire that, like consistency I don't want to say consistency is not my strong suit but consistency is something I'm building so whenever I hear people <laughs> saying like I'm like what no like That's if I don't goal. do it I go insane <gasps> yeah like okay. all that repressed emotion just comes out and I'm like oh my god oh. <laughs>